Welcome to the Duke Basketball Corner Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Comero. So, I am recording this in the middle of the night between uh, Thursday and Friday. And you want to know dedication? This is dedication. Not only am I doing a solo pod, but as I said, it is the middle of the night because my program malfunctioned. I recorded an entire episode with Andrew Clark. thought we did a great job. And it didn't record. Bottom line, it didn't record. So I'd say we recorded, but basically we were just talking to each other. Because nobody will ever hear that, and that's a damn shame. It's kind of like Duke's game against NC State that they just played, losing 88-66. And it was, it was a rough one. So I know there's many people who I don't really agree with the principle of how they do it, but everyone can do their own thing of they basically just pretend the game never happened and don't want to think about it, don't read about it, don't watch anything about it. It's just like it never occurred. It's almost like I I would always get frustrated with the official Duke account when they used to post like their highlights and uh, interviews after games on YouTube on Duke Blue Planet they wouldn't do it after losses. Uh, kind of, I mean, that literally is what they're doing is trying to wipe it out of memory. And it's very weird because just like anything in life, basketball, you lose a game, there's just as much to learn from a loss as there may be from a win. And I've never really understood that approach. So I know there's some people who don't want to hear, but I am here to kind of break it down. I, this podcast is for people who care about basketball. Not just people who say, I love Duke, and then don't really care what's actually going on in the games. This is for people who are Duke fans and who want to know what's actually going on in the games. Because, again, after this game, just like many other games, people aren't really talking about or writing about or reporting about what the actual deal is with the game. What actually occurred? What should be the main storylines? Why the game happened as it did? Mostly, it's just kind of towing the company line. Kay says, oh, we just weren't competitive enough. I mean, it's just, it really makes it so easy for people just to say, oh, they have no heart. They didn't try hard enough. They didn't want it enough. They didn't play the Duke way. And it's all nonsense. There is, of course, the human element. As I always say, there is going to be that natural uh, thing occurring when the other team comes with urgency, you got to match it because when you're Duke, other teams will come with urgency. This, the, there's going to, the stands are going to be packed. Everyone's going to be excited. There's going to be an energy that exists every game that may not exist for that other team's games. It's not that they all of a sudden like magically play better. It's just man, adrenaline does some crazy things and they know cameras are there the attention's there you play well in this game people will know people will see so i think it is a huge game obviously for everyone that's not i think it just is so duke they have they have to know there is a target on their back always that's just how it's going to be so there is the element of they didn't quite match state's intensity and urgency I went into this against UNC, so I don't think it needs the whole deep dive again into what that actually means with uh, kind of urgency and desperation. The really, 
the two characteristics that it's just you can't prepare for that in practice. You just got to experience it and then you'll find out how you deal with it in human nature. And the more times you experience it, the more accustomed you'll become. But Duke, they didn't quite match State's intensity. Having said that, I don't feel like that's why they lost. I feel like that is a, a kind of a, a sliver of why they lost. But there are so many actual basketball aspects to this game that deserve to be talked about. And I think, and I think a lot of them are really interesting because it's not just, oh, just kind of this, this game, they, blew, they got blown out and it is what it is. There are certain games which occur like that. Boston College, I said that exact thing. Boston College, I felt like, you know what, they were just looking forward to North Carolina. And it's it's just one of those things. But I still did actually go over that game. But even doing that, I knew there wasn't too much to take away from it. Same thing with even Notre Dame. The Notre Dame pod, I'm sure anyone who listened... I went, not just for the season, but when I was going over Notre Dame, it was a lot more analytics space, a lot more stats space than I usually do, which for me, I mean, stats are, I'm not a big stats guy. So it's, it's odd that some um, consider me into stats. I just think it's interesting to take a stat and break it down and find out why it occurs, how it occurs, um, just like anything in life, to make it easier to understand. But I don't, I don't overuse stats. But what I do for the ACC tournament and for the NCAA tournament for previews, because I've never been a big preview guy, I just I look and I see what the other team does well based on stats. And I talk about how Duke, how they can match up with what the other team does well, what the other team's weaknesses are, and aspects such as that. So I can at least give people some form of knowledge about the team they're about to face. So that's kind of what I did with Notre Dame. I just went over and, hey, Notre Dame was good at this or not good at this. And how did Duke do against that? How did Duke match up? So it was kind of a almost a practice run in the way I'll do it there. But there's not, I mean, there's not going to be nearly as much analytics in this episode and uh, or pretty much any episode going over actual games. That's just, I always use stats when they have a purpose, when it's appropriate, and when I can kind of break it down and say why they occur. But I don't overuse it. But in this episode, there is one thing that I will do. I'm going to actually use a stat, which I I can't really remember ever actually using as a focus for what I'm going to... And I will give a million qualifiers for why I'm doing it, but it deserves to be used. All right, so uh, Duke State... Kind of like watching that game, it kind of all I could think about was the Flaming Lips song, uh, Bad Days. It was kind of playing in the in my head as Duke was playing. It was kind of funny. So it was the first time, I'm sure uh, many have heard it reported, first time a ranked Duke team has lost to an unranked uh, team. Uh, a ranked Duke team has lost to an unranked team by 20 plus under Coach K. And just get to get a little perspective. I mean, just to show you how nuts his career at Duke ha- has been, or Duke under Coach K. I mean, the early years from ni- from eighty one to eighty three, three seasons, thirteen. I mean, when I got to thinking about what is a blowout, 
And I think the 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 line, the dividing line, I would say would be fifteen. Fifteen is kind of on the brink where it's say, oh, that's that's a bad loss, but it's not a blowout. Once you get past that, I think it's fair to call it a blowout. So I have uh, personally labeled it as sixteen plus, losing by sixteen or more. So in the first three years at Duke, uh, thirteen games he lost by sixteen or more. Eight of those games by twenty plus. Three of those games by 25 plus. Those were uh, 35, 38, and 43. So, yeah, after his first season where he had some experience, and even like the second, kind of building from scratch, there were, some rough, there were some rough times. So, those were the earliest years. The early years, 84, 85, two seasons, two games uh, lost by 16 or more. One game, one of those was 25 plus, a 1984 game against uh, Wake Forest, which they lost by 31. Then uh, nothing from 86 to 88. So ni- 1989 to ni- 1998. Ten seasons. Eight games they lost by 16 or more. Four games 20 plus. One game 25 plus. Nothing from 99 to 2009. It's 11 straight seasons. Never losing one game by more than 15 points. Freaking wild. So now the modern era. 2009 to the current. 12 seasons. 10 games, which they lost by 16 plus, 5 games they lost by 20 plus, and 2 games they lost by 25 plus. So overall, I I kind of, I started K at 1986 for when I felt like he had gotten everything together. Um, so 1986 to current, 35 seasons, 9 losses by 20 plus. 35 seasons, only 9 losses, not too many. Three losses by 25 plus points from uh, and during that same period, 35 seasons. So, yeah, th- this rarely happens. It rarely happens, but you know what? It didn't. I don't really feel like it's a referendum on the season or anything. I mean, one of those times in the last uh, in that last category I gave in recent years, one of those times was to Miami in 2015. Had that 2015 team do pretty good, I would say pretty good yeah it's it doesn't necessarily have to mean this is what this team is going to be it's just a crappy game but I don't think it's a crappy game to just look past because there's a lot of things to take away and look at following games to see are these issues still occurring and real quick just to go over because I do find this interesting in terms of the of the blowouts that have occurred since 1986 all three home losses by 16 or more um, have been to North Carolina, unfortunately. Eight on the road, five in the NCAA tournament, one in the ACC tournament, one in a preseason tournament, and then 12 against ACC opponents. I am not counting Louisville in 2013. They were not in the ACC at that time. Uh, six total against uh, UNC, two against Miami, Four against uh, other ACC opponents. There was that 1991 Virginia, 2009 Clemson, 2017 Florida State, and 2020 State. In terms of the 20-point losses, which matches up with NC State, um, in those 35 seasons, let's uh, I'll just list them off. Uh, there was February 19th, 2020, which, okay, guess what? We'll talk about March 31st. 2013, a lead eight against Louisville. 22 points. 
January 23rd, 2013 at Miami. So that was two times by that 2013 team they lost by more than 20. That was 27 points they lost. And that team made the lead eight and played the champion. And if uh, they'd gotten a different sort of possible road in the NCAA tournament, they could have gone further. That was a good team. So you can see how random games can occur. Or not random, just poor games. Uh, 2009, March 26th, that was against Villanova. Lost by 26, 23 points. That just kind of went went bad in the second half of that game. And a game that this is something that most kind of just want to forget about. Anyone who saw it, it was brutal. February 4th, 2009 at Clemson. Yikes. 27 points. Feb- uh, February 5th, 1998 at UNC. Lost by 24 points. Uh, 1991, March 10th, the semifinal of the ACC tournament against UNC, lost by 22. April 2nd, 1990, against UNLV, the NCAA tournament final, lost by 30. Brutal. And finally, January 18th, 1989, versus UNC, lost by 20. And then we got three 25-plus point losses. Again, this is from 1986 to the current. There was uh, the UNC game. Well, I've mentioned these games. I just kind of want to repeat. UNLV, Clemson in 2009, and Miami in 2013. So those are some pretty good teams. I mean, the 2009 team made the Sweet 16. 2013 team made the Elite Eight. And then obviously the uh, 1990 team in the final. So, yeah, it can occur. It can occur, and the, the thing that you have to make sure you're not doing is just saying Duke has no heart and all that crap because, you know what, these dudes are given everything, and they will toe the company line, They'll just and I think they'll just kind of repeat what Kay says, but there's a lot of basketball stuff. As the start of the game, I think this is something is starting to become a bit of a concern because... Earlier in the year, there were maybe hints of it at times when they were outscored early on. Ken Palm separates it and it separates games into quarters, like all basketball games should be, in my opinion. Fight me. And the non-conference games that they were outscored in non-conference in the first quarter were Kansas, Georgetown, and actually Brown. And then they kind of got together, but in the last 12 games... They've been outscored in seven of them in the in the first quarter. Just to go down, Georgia Tech, eighteen to fourteen. Wake Forest, they they did outscore Wake Forest, twenty four thirteen. Clemson, they got outscored, uh, twenty to nineteen. Louisville, they got outscored, twenty five to ten. Miami, they blew Miami, they blew the doors off Miami immediately, twenty four nine. Pitt, they outscored Pitt, but barely, fifteen to fourteen. Syracuse got outscored, nineteen to fourteen. Boston College got outscored 14 to 8. UNC got outscored 24 to 16. So, yeah, it hasn't been good. And then they did get it together. Florida State 21 to 11 outscored them. Notre Dame 20 to 12. But NC State outscored Duke 18 to 11. So, in the last 12 games, they've actually been outscored in uh, the quote unquote first quarter by one point. I can't really say exactly why they're starting out in a lot of these games a bit slow. I think it does factor into the leadership. I don't think they have a kind of 
a rah-rah guy who is a big part and he handles the ball and just has a huge role on the team. Like somebody like Zion, um, who they just kind of, I mean, he would just get everyone amped and they would follow his lead. Or even a guy like R.J. Barrett, not necessarily as vocal, but he just has kind of an aura about him. And immediately everyone just kind of got in gear when, I mean, R.J., he always would come ready to play. Duke was never going to be blown out of the water right away. Um, with this team, Trey, he's not very vocal. He's kind of um, adapting to the role and will eventually, hopefully, become more vocal. But at the same time, he has 100% respect. And I, I just don't think it comes totally naturally to him to be that vocal leader. But at the same time, I think he does a great job leading this team. If the other team comes with that urgency, if they come with that energy, and Duke needs to match it, who's going to be the guy to kind of fire up Duke? Because, yeah, you would hope that they're just ready to go. I mean, how could you not be ready to go immediately? You know, what? Life, ha- life happens. You don't, it's just natural. You're not up for everything. So it would help for Duke to have someone like, I mean, even like a Quinn Cook in 2015. Someone who's kind of been through the wars, who knows, who know, who has experience in all this, and isn't kind of putting on an act, is naturally really just can hype guys up, and is genuine about it, and the guy, and maybe somebody like Javin can, but he's just not his his role on the team. I don't think is enough to really make that as really for it to come through as much as it would. Uh, possibly for uh, another person. So I, I don't know. I don't know if that's exactly the reason. That could just be a theory. It probably is just a theory. You know what? Who knows? Who knows? I don't like to do the armchair psychology, but the bottom line is leadership, however you consider it, vocally by example, or just kind of steady the troops kind of thing, or energy. Who knows? Leadership can come through in many ways. And I don't know what goes on in practice, but I did think that would be something to keep an eye on at the beginning of the season. I talked a lot about that in the season preview. And now with them struggling out of the gate at some points consistently, I just think it's worth kind of keeping in mind. It's, it's something to track. I don't know if maybe worried is the right way to talk about it. It's more just something to really track and see if it continues. Let's just let's just get right into it now. In terms of Duke and uh, the free throws, I, I mean that's that's actually another one. I don't know how to, I don't know how to explain because some games they look like they make everything, some games they make nothing. I think pressure really doesn't have much effect on it. I think the games which they look like they're making everything, they just keep on. It doesn't matter if it's close or a blowout or anything, and the same goes the other way. So it's it's like Dwight Howard, it's like Shaq in practice where you would hear they make everything. And then in games, it's just a different situation. It becomes as much, if not more, mental than actual physical shooting at the free throws. I, I can't explain. I mean, when you have a guy like Cassius uh, standing in, a guy like Matthew Hurt, two guys who are really, really solid, if not great, free throw shooters, and they both just go 0 of 2, I can't explain that. I mean, Vern, I've, I've said that as long as he's not terrible, then I'm okay with him. And he wasn't terrible. Trey, he's mostly 
reliable. Even he can kind of go off at times. But bottom line, they were 5 of 17 before garbage time hit. And I definitely consider their definitive garbage time in this game. And that's when through an awful entry pass. And I forget uh, who exactly. It was, it was stolen, taken down. I think Daniels made two free throws there. And that was it. 5-16 left in the game. That's when it pretty much ended. And everything else after that was just garbage time. I don't want to say meaningless because it always counts. But the game was essentially out of hand at that point. All right, so free throw shooting, yeah, 5 of 17. It's just not It's not going to cut it. But it's. I think the mistake would be just to say they're not practicing enough. They're not practicing free throws enough. Because you can't practice that type of thing. You can't. I mean, you can, you, well, you can, but it doesn't mean it'll translate to the games. So hopefully uh, they just get it together because, I mean, I don't think it's the, about the percentage as much that matters unless it gets to the point of like a 5 for 17 game. I think it'll matter most in crunch time because last year's team, I wasn't really concerned about, it shot something like 65%, not good, but not terrible. It was the fact that they would clank them when it mattered most every single time. And they got incredibly lucky to escape with victories almost every single time then. I mean, finally it bit them in the butt against Michigan State, but they had won something like seven straight games, missing free throws within the final minute and winning by one or two points. And that's just, it's... There's so much variance when it gets to close games like that. Kind of like UNC, they're getting pretty unlucky this season with the close games. I mean, if you look at Pete Gaudet taking over the 95 Duke team, go look at the results of those games. Man, that's brutal. And I mean that. And I mean, two games were in double over double overtime, two weeks apart. And there was a stretch. It was like six or seven straight games. It was like two or three points, and they lost most of them. And Man, that was brutal. Much love to Pete Gaudet, man. He did, he did, he did what he could. That was, a, I mean, but the team wasn't. I don't think as bad as people remember. It's just because of the record, like a lot of those games could have gone either way. It just didn't work out. Uh, second chance points. That's another one. NC State. They're not terrible at uh, offensive rebounds and second chance points, but you can't allow that. You can't get beat twenty-five to twelve in second chance points. It's just. This Duke team, they need to really control the boards on both ends. And NC State's not the type of team that usually dominates on the offensive glass. So especially in games when you're not getting those kind of extra points, whether it be from free throws, whether it be from three-pointers, whether it be from transition, or second-chance points from offensive rebounds or whatever, like, it's, it's a killer. It, it forces you to be so efficient in half court. And Duke was anything but efficient in half court. So they, they, can't, they can't get beat like that. And especially as I'll talk about with NC State, how they actually scored in their offense. It was not exactly super efficient for them in the second half. A lot of it was, Funder, was uh, Funderburg really getting those offensive rebounds and putting it back. Besides that, there wasn't much else going on with NC State in the second half. All right, so five of Duke's 11 lowest turnover percentage games on defense this season have occurred in February. 
Duke has played six total games in February. So they have really dropped off in terms of turning the other team over. And this is even with Wendell Moore back. So it has kind of an eerie feeling of last year. When last year, when Duke start, stopped turning opponents over as much, especially live ball turnovers, it forced them to be more efficient in half court. And this team is more efficient in half court than last year's team. But still, it gets dangerous when you're relying so much about that. And the last team that Duke really turned over a bunch was Louisville. Last season, if you look back, Louisville was kind of, that was the turning point. Louisville was the last team they turned over. And even that was kind of that crazy comeback. So I don't know if it was necessarily they were turning them over based on the normal defense. It pretty much wasn't. It was because of the zone press. So, yeah, even even that wasn't necessarily Duke's defense. Duke's regular defense was just forcing the issue. It was desperation, which, as I said before, tough to match. Uh, third straight game with a zero-point half from the bench. UNC and Notre Dame were the first half, and State was the second. So, it's concerning either way, but at least when it's the first half, then you can still hope for a spark in the second half to pick up that energy but when it's the second half that you're not getting anything that wears on you and I'm sure many saw how Trey and Vern they had they just they had no juice left at a certain point so that comeback that's why I said like once it got to about 516 I mean who knows anything can happen so who am I to say 516 should be the end all you had to do was just look at Trey and Vern I mean they were gassed they were totally gassed and it was just tough to see any possible way that Duke would come back. You never know, but it was tough. And, I mean, until that point, it kind of had shade, like eerie shades of 2012, which which was nuts because, I mean, we remember that eight years to the day of Austin Rivershot was the crazy game this year against UNC. And then, if, if you remember, I believe it, it might have been uh, about a week after that game, maybe even eight days after that, when Seth Curry led one of, I mean, if it wasn't for Louisville last year, I mean, State, they were down 20 with, uh, I believe, 11 and a half minutes left. And Seth Curry went off, and it was just a crazy comeback. And now you have you had the same thing with Duke starting to come back against State this season. Didn't quite work out, but for, for a couple minutes, it did have... An interesting feeling there. I'll just go over a couple more things because I don't want to go over every detail of this game because there are, there is two huge, huge, huge narratives that I think deserve to be uh, talked about. One, just a quick overview, but the other one, definitely, absolutely, because it is the number one thing. There's nothing even close. Number one, and I, I don't know. Maybe there are people talking about it, but if if so, not enough. But that is going to be the focus. I'm just going over kind of some trends right now that go beyond the game. When you when you listen to this pod, it's not just based on one game. It's what it means for that game, but also what it means moving forward, how it compares to the past. Everything matters. Absolutely everything matters, at least to me. And I feel like when others watch the game, in terms of trying to understand the how and the why, rather than just the what... I feel like uh, hopefully it will matter to you as well. Uh, another interesting thing. This isn't as much a huge concern. It's just an interesting uh, fact. After recording at least one assist in every half this season, 
Trey Trey Jones, he's now gone two straight games with a zero assist half. Um, somehow, Javin Deloria was the only Duke player with an assist in the first half when he hit uh, Alex O'Connell on a fantastic cut down the lane. But, yeah, I mean, it's, it's something. I mean, Trey's always really gotten most of his assists in transition. And, I mean, dumping inside to Vernon Carey, that'll help boost the assists a lot. And when the offense, when the half court offense is struggling, it's just tough. And now that he is uh, forced to be more of a scorer, now it's almost like Seth Seth Greenberg watching the game. I felt like he'd never watched Trey Jones since last year. I know he's mostly in the booth uh, for ESPN, but having said that, it was very weird. It really seemed like he just had no idea the way Trey Jones played this season because everything Trey did, he's like, well, last year he would have done this. Last year he would have done that. I mean, Seth, it's February. Uh, it's, it's getting to be late February, and Trey's not the same player he was last year. I know that's like breaking news to you, but I don't know. So, yeah, Trey scores for Duke. It's not last year. All right. I would say the first half was similar to Notre Dame and just two guys doing all the scoring for NC State. But instead of Notre Dame relying on the front court, NC State did it with the back court with Markel Johnson and Devin Daniels. And those two guys, it's very, it was very different because they control the action. They control the pace. They control the flow of everything. So it made a big difference. And, I mean, they scored 33 of the 44 points, 12 20 field goals, 5 of 17 for everyone else. They hit 3 of 3 uh, from deep, 1 of 3 for everyone else. Uh, they 6 of 8 free throws. I think that was all Daniels. 0 of 2 for others. 3 assists, no, none for anyone else. I mean, they were doing everything. They were carrying the load. Then, in the second half, it was completely different. Because it was still Markel... But it was then Funderburg offensive rebounding. It was just two guys really doing everything. So the question is, how? why wasn't Duke able to stop it? Well, in the first half, I mean, because it wasn't just Markel Johnson, who has struggled this year from three. He actually was a 40% shooter last year on a legit sample. So it's not like he's a terrible three-point shooter. He's just having a down year from three. But he's proven his ability in, uh, in the past. I mean, when his first three-point opportunity, Wendell Wendell Moore went under the screen, the high screen at the top of the the top of the or above the break, and I would say I would I would agree with that. I mean, you have a guy that's just not hitting anything. Yeah, for, force him to hit. He, I mean, Markel Johnson's a quick a quick guy, so yeah, go under the screen and just prevent him from beating you off the dribble from that high screen. And he hit it. But it wasn't like that all of a sudden Duke was just terrible with the high screens. Kind of like I remember Miami and NC State back in 2015 where they just they couldn't deal with the high screens and the pick and roll. And guys were just launching threes against them. And it was a whole deal. And that's why they ended up going zone for a bit while they recalculated things. His other threes throughout the game... It was just pretty much, uh, I think there was one later in the game where he used a high screen, but others, it was, I mean, I, I mean, it was pretty much just working, dudes. Like, it taking him off the bounce. I think he did that to Baker, he did it to Hurt, and then he hit a half-court shot, which 
I don't think there's too much defense you can uh, play against that. So it wasn't like there was tons of screens going on for him to set him up for three. And Duke's three-point rate was still fantastic. They weren't allowing much. It's just, I mean, he hit him. So one of those days, it's one of those days where a guy is going to have a great day. And yeah, if he's just kind of hitting it in Matthew Hurd's eye, and hitting it in Joey Baker's eye. I mean, Baker, it almost seemed like Markel was going in slow motion, and Baker still got off balance. That was funny in a, I guess, unfunny way. So, yeah, I mean, I don't, I, I think that is just something I am willing to live with because I don't think Duke really did anything wrong against Markel Johnson. I think the big issue was just the way that Duke was playing. The defense, even though having said that, I think there aren't going to be too many teams which have ball handlers as adept as NC State who are able to kind of weave through and snake through Duke's ice coverage in the pick and roll because the icing, the uh, the pick and roll, that's worked out really well this season. Duke's been fantastic against the pick and roll or any sort of high screen and State, they're just able to kind of weave through it. And... It wasn't just that. It's when you look at the, that uh, the assist rate. I think assist rate can sometimes be misleading unless it's against a zone. I think often it can be misleading. I think so many times people look at like, oh, they have this many assists for this many field goals, and it's just like, who cares? I mean, there's so much that goes into it, and I don't know. I don't think it matters nearly as much as most people think. But when you look at what State was trying to do. A lot of the high screens they were using for their ball handlers were made for matchups to to switch a different defender on them and get a better matchup. And then they would just ISO because uh, I'll go into a couple stats later in terms of what State did better against Duke in terms of actual plays, but a lot of it was ISO. A ton of it was ISO. And it was because a guy like... Uh, Daniels, I mean, he's going against guys who he can beat nonstop. He's, if he's going against a guy like Jack White, if he's going against Matthew Hurt, if he's going against Joey Baker, Javon Delorier, Vernon Carey, yeah, he can beat them off the dribble. And then once he, once he gets going and gets that confidence, yeah, I mean, then it's just on. So that's the way that NC State was really using the high screens. Another thing was the handoff. M- many think uh, the dribble handoff, that is something which kind of, I mean, Duke uses it sometimes, not nearly as much as they could, or creatively as, as they could, um, but usually at the, at the uh, free throw line, a lot of times when they go with horns, um, with uh, Hurt and Vern at the elbows. State wasn't doing that. They were using it really extended up, elevated up, and using it in the same way you do with the pick and roll. It doesn't go down in the in the stats as a pick and roll, but it works the same way, sometimes even better. Because you get the defender behind you. You go you go around, you get the defender behind you, you keep him on the hip. That that's what you want to do. So that, that you don't really see a lot of teams in college use the dribble handoff like State did against Duke, but it was impressive, and it's not reinventing the wheel or anything. I'm not saying State did anything 
Like, that just blew my mind. But, I mean, you look at uh, how often the the handoff has been used against Duke on defense, not much. One of the lowest plays used against Duke. State used it a lot, and it, and it was basically just another form of pick and roll. Just to get the, the ball handler on a defender that just can't guard him. So I, I think that was the issue, and Duke was allowing that too much. So when that keeps happening over and over, right, whether it be just a high screen setting up an ISO or a high screen um, setting up a pick and roll, and then you have guys like Vern who at times struggles uh, um, against the pick and roll and often ends up in no man's land because he's not quite sure whether to show or whether to hedge or whether to drop, or I mean, most most of the time he kind of ends up switching, but it's a very soft switch. So it kind of sends a mixed message to the to um, his teammate in terms of are we switching or are we are we staying? Like I I don't know. It's very you got to be definitive whatever you do. There's got to be communication. That's something that there was not nearly enough of with Duke in terms of communicating the switches on defense. But what what I would have done, and who am I? Nobody. But I would have blitzed that shit. I mean, when when you have constantly it's the same thing every time, just get the ball out of the ball handlers. Get get it out of Daniel's hands. Get it out of Markel Johnson's hands. Make somebody else beat you, especially in the second half when it's just Markel. When Daniels isn't really doing anything, so. Just get it out of his hands. Blitz. Blitz it. I mean, yeah, it can set you up for risks, but, you know, better than just getting... I mean, the definition of crazy is doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. You think that's better? No. I would have tried... I would have blitzed it more, but as I said, there aren't many teams who can uh, beat the ice as uh, well as State did. So, credit to them. At the same time, while I think Duke could have done things differently, credit to NC State. All right, um, let's see what else we got here before I get into the main thing. And actually, you know what that was? I said there were two main things. The whole the the way that NC State was setting up their offense and Duke's defense, how they were playing it. That's that was actually one of them. So I have uh, covered that. Found it. okay. Worst post entries of the season. There were at least three post entries which were straight up grabbed out of the air by the defender. And that that's almost like impossibly bad. So I mean one was by Cassius, one by AOC, one by Hurt. And it just I, I don't get it. I mean, I saw this immediately at the beginning of the season when they just weren't great at post entries, and that's something I didn't feel like I I don't know how much they worked on it last season. But, I mean, you can see against Michigan State, that was a huge underrated, under-the-radar reason why they lost to Michigan State is all the turnovers from post-entries. And they hadn't actually, they I thought they had improved um, this season because it was pretty bad at the, at the start. But against NC State, it was just horrific. It was absolutely horrific. And I think... NC State, they 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 would they do a lot of what Duke does in terms of Duke. When Trey's man doesn't have the ball, Trey stays down low and kind of stunts everywhere, um, kind of acts as a safety. 
when you're throwing a post entry, there's going to be a guy there for State. The same way a lot of times there is for Duke, who's ready to create havoc. you got to be aware about that. The post entries, they got to improve. They got, you got to have the angles. you got to use the angles. you got to throw it accurately. The Whoever's in the post, most likely Vern, he's got to make sure to seal off or pin down. And yeah, I mean, it's just giving away possessions, and it's just brutal to watch because post entries, it's a very basic thing. This is more opinion. I think some guys just kind of, they weren't in the moment as much as they could be. They were kind of just playing as is, almost like robotic, which caused, I would say, miscommunication, especially defense and missed opportunities on offense. Like Vern, at 1749, really early, he had a high-low opportunity, which was just, I mean, it was right there to Matthew Hurt with Duke's high-low. It pretty much always goes from Hurt to... Vern the same way it would always go from like Wendell Wendell Carter to Marvin Bagley and not the reverse. But at the same time, when you see something that's there for the taking and your team has the advantage, you got you got to use that advantage. Instead, Vern just kind of put his head down and took the ball to the basket. And I think he did draw the foul. I can't quite remember on that play. But at the same time, you got to be able to adapt. The same way with Trey. It's 16 minutes. His defender, uh, I think, went for a ball fake, and Trey had the whole lane, the entire lane wide open. Instead, he just passed to Vern, because I think it's just automatic at this point. You're just doing what you're supposed to do. But at the same time, you've got to be able to adapt. you got to freelance within the system. There's not too much going on in Duke's half-court offense at any time. So if you have the ability to make something happen... Go for it. I mean, especially like Trey. He has that freedom. Use it. So I I love Goldwire. I still worry his role might be preventing Duke from reaching their ceiling. And that's something I've gone over in detail many times about playing to your ceiling. And it's not just what works good enough in the moment, but rather projecting forward and think about where you can be best and what position and what role and how the team could absolutely be the best form of themselves. is That will relate to, uh, as, as I'll mention every episode, my lineup. Where's my lineup? But, I mean, Goldwire with his offense, it can be limiting. He's great. I gave a whole appreciation to him last pod, and that was 100% genuine. But at the same time, I just worry because K is so comfortable, it seems, with him, that he's just going to be in there no matter what. And I still want him in there plenty. I still want him to have that role, but not. I don't want him to be almost guaranteed it. So we'll see what happens there. And it's a bit of the same principle with Matthew Hurt. His ability on offense is nice when he matches up with the opponent, but the way he's just hunted on defense is nuts. It really is nuts when you rewatch. And I don't know, Baker playing the three with more at the four it still provides that same outside shooting as her, though that's me projecting my Baker analysis forward, considering he hasn't exactly lit the world on fire lately. But I just think more he's he's a much better matchup on defense. And I don't think Baker, he's not the quickest of foot. 
not close. But I, I don't think he's hunted. Or not, that's not. I shouldn't even say. It. I don't think he's not hunted like Matthew Hurt. It's not even in the same realm. All right. So Javin was great. Um, I mean, he did kind of. He missed. He missed time to jump on a uh, missed free throw, and I think Thunderbird grabbed it and put it back. So whoever kind of looks for that one play, Javin has every game to kind of. I don't know. Some people like ripping him. There, there's your play. There's always going to be one, but overall, I think Javin was fantastic, and I actually thought him and Vern together worked really well. Javin really didn't. I think he got like a minute by himself, not nothing much. But him with Javin was going real well, and Cade just decided to go away from it. And I can kind of see both sides on that because I don't think that's something against NC State where it might have been able to be uh, lasting. I don't know. I can kind of see both sides in that, but bottom line, they—they they, I thought they played really well together, and I thought Javin did a fantastic job overall. I mean, especially considering all the all the uh, high ball screens that State was using and side ball screens, and the way he was switched onto Markel Johnson a bunch of times, he handled himself real well. It, it reminded me of almost the game like uh, with Marquise Bolden last season against Florida State when they were hunting Bolden, and you know what? He's not an all-world defender, but he moves he moves his feet really well. And Bolden, I think he proved in that game, you know, you're not going to be able to hunt me. And I didn't really see opponents do it as much after that Florida State game because he really held his own in that game. And Javin, I think he's I don't think anyone questions his footwork. So his ability to stay with uh, Markel Johnson shouldn't have surprised anyone. At the same time. Markel Johnson, I think uh, because of his three-point shooting and how efficient he was, I think uh, he might get a bit more credit than he deserves. I think he played a great game. But at the same time, he settled for so many shots, these mid-range, really low percentage opportunities. And it wasn't just mid-range. Like Carolina, they shot mid-range, but they were like open, wide-open mid-range. Markel Johnson... He would shoot these like contested mid-range shots when I mean if you're up against like Vern or guys like that like I don't know take him to the, take him to the hole but so he made some questionable decisions and it almost one of the reasons why Duke started to mount a comeback is because State they started rushing they didn't start working for shots like they had before and it, it like UNC their natural way of their half court offense is just kind of find that quick shot, as much, or at least this season it is. But uh, NC State, they did a good job of working for good opportunities. And then when Duke was coming back, NC State helped them by settling for uh, low percentage shots early in the shot clock. So Markel Johnson was a part of that. Overall, though, I still think he did play a great game. And, uh, yeah, I'm happy he got a big win. And now State, they might, uh, for the moment, not be on the bubble, they might be in, but everything can change in a moment uh, this season. All right, it's I mean Alex O'Connell. It's kind of, it's kind of tough to find the words for uh, some of his uh, defensive possessions. I, I don't know. I mean, those who listen to the last. I mean, I, I'm not even. I mean, on defense, he's kind of. It's just an adventure. But uh, on offense, those who listened to the last app, I was just hoping O'Connell's legendary garbage time efforts this season could hopefully transition to uh, consistent production when it matters most. I mean, it's it's uh, it's inconsistent. I mean, you have a game like UNC where 
I mean, he look he looks great, but it's just you know you know you never know. I mean, he had the opportunities to provide some big moments against NC State and Duke. I mean, they they had their opportunities to cut into single digits when it mattered most, and then eventually it's just as I, as I mentioned before, Trey and Vern ran out of gas, but Duke had moments and. Guys like O'Connell, Wendell, uh, I mean, they have to be able to come through when it matters most in that time and kind of use that momentum. Don't waste it. Here, I mean, Matthew Hurt just took away any option by picking up two immediate fouls after starting, which I thought was an interesting decision by Kay in the first place, starting in place of uh, Wendell Moore. So, I mean, that, that took him away, but even when, he, I mean, he got playing time in the second half started, but, I mean, even then, very quickly, it was just obvious that it, it's tough. It's, unless he's providing immediate offense, consistent offense, the defense is just going to be worse with him on there. I'm not saying it will next season or later in his career. I'm saying right now, with his skill set, with his build, with with his uh, with his experience, all fell all that things, all those things combined, and obviously experience. I mean, lack of and build. I mean, there's not much to him. So you just, I mean, it is what it is at this point. Use him when you can. I mean, I say this every single episode, and so when he has a great game, I just think people gotta chill, and it's not a matter of oh, you you don't want to you don't want to give him credit. I absolutely do, and when he does, I have, and I continuously will. But I just think it's, with this Duke team, their identity is defense. And it's tough to have a guy like that on the court. It would have been nice to at least see, though, because Duke's offense was a train wreck. An absolute train wreck. Especially in the half court. So, yeah, if he was on there, maybe the the offense wouldn't have been quite as uh, as poor, but who knows? Because he just you, you couldn't rely on him with the defense. All right, so uh, Joey Baker, I mean, he made a couple questionable plays, and I mean, he needs to make sure just if he's on there, don't do anything crazy. But even having said that, I think it, like there's nothing that's changed my opinion of him. His shots, I mean, it's. It's just, I mean, when t- if I'm going to say his shots are coming close, they're rimming out, that's just basic basketball. And it sounds like I'm just kind of like rooting for him a little too much. But I don't I don't think that's the case. I think, I mean, just it, it's a matter of time. And I think it's more about he just, he, need, he, need, he needs time with my lineup, man. He needs time with my lineup. He needs to be with Trey. He needs to be with uh, Wendell at the four, Cassius at the two, and Vern at the five. And I just think that fits perfectly. I think that absolutely fits perfectly. So uh, did that occur against NC State? Yes. He got half a minute with that lineup, and Duke outscored State 2-0. So I win. I'm just kidding. All right, so uh, Trey hit two big pull-ups in transition. I talked about that and how kind of it's almost like a uh, Cash's dunking transition for momentum. I think that was huge. I wouldn't rely on it too much, but it was great to see he's consistently hitting now, especially when Duke was as desperate as they were just for any points. I will say credit Vern for his ability to get shot blockers in foul trouble because when you're facing guys who can block shots as well as Manny Bates, 
Juwan Durham. I mean, even Terrell Brown for uh, Pittsburgh. I mean, these are guys that they affect every, everything with when uh, you have um, perimeter players trying to get to the basket. But, if, I mean, Vern, I've said, like, I want to see him against some of these bigs who can really match up. And in a sense, I've been almost disappointed that the guys he's going against, they haven't been able to stay on the court. I mean, when Durham was on there, he was great. But you know what? Credit to Vern. I mean, they're not staying on because they're picking up fouls because they have to foul, they have to foul Vern. So instead of being disappointed that those matchups aren't occurring, how about just give Vern his props? So I'm doing it. Is that is that it? I think that's pretty much it. Yeah, I think it's time to get to uh, the last thing, which is the most important thing. Nothing else is close. Nothing else comes even close. This, when I was watching the game, I, I, I didn't understand it. I, I could feel like my head exploding and it just, it, nothing made sense about it. But I did feel like there could be a reason. That reason turned out to be, doesn't sure doesn't seem like it. So I'm back to square one. I don't know. All right. So you think about uh, the way NC State was just basically running Duke off the court right away. In the first half. Reminded me of Louisville. And what was the one thing that prevented uh, Duke from really just getting blown off the court against Louisville? Because it was only one thing. It wasn't a whole bunch. It was one thing. It was one person. And it was Cassius Stanley. Cassius Stanley's that dude. Like, he is, he is that dude. He brings that attitude for Duke. And he will not allow anyone to bully Duke. They will not get blown off the court if Cassius Stanley's in there. So Cassius Stanley, I mean, even though Vern kind of mistimed his jump a bit, I mean, it was still a pretty bad post entry that Stanley threw around like, I mean, it was like a minute into the game. And he went out around, I will say... 17, oh, here we go. All right, so first half. Stanley was in at 20, I mean, obviously 20 minutes started, out at 17.48, so almost immediately after that post-entry. In at 14 minutes, out at 10.35. In at 5.20, out at 3.31. Then in at 53.2 seconds left to the end of the half. Then he started on the bench for the second half. And didn't come in until, let's see here, he came in at 5.33. When Duke was down 57 to 34. Why? So I'm thinking to myself, like, I mean, the whole first half, I'm just going crazy. What is Cassius Stanley doing on the, like, his eye has to be bothering him. Like, this has to be a lingering eye issue. Because... Um, of how, unfortunately, he got poked in the eye by a manager um, before the uh, Notre Dame game. But, at this, I mean, at the same time, like, he played the entire second half at once he was subbed in at, as I said, 15:33. So, if he's good enough to play the entire second half, I would think he's good enough where, why, why was he not in in the first half as much? Because out of the first 25 minutes of the game... Cassius Stanley played a third of those minutes. He only had one foul, so he wasn't in foul trouble. 
I don't know. Was that one post entry enough to just get in Kay's doghouse? Because there were some, there were some other post entries. There were some other questionable decision making by guys on the team. And then, all right, so you combine it with the fact that of Devin Daniels. Devin Daniels was, as I said, able to kind of just get switches to ISO against everyone and get confidence, and he was just going nuts. And everyone was reporting how he was just unstoppable, and Kay was giving him props after the game, and all, all the reporters were talking about how Duke had no answer. Because, I don't know. I don't know. Well, if you think about it, Who's a guy that fights through screens harder than anyone? Who's a guy, I'm not saying he would have stopped Devin Daniels. I am not saying that. But you know, he would have made life pretty damn difficult. I mean, there was, there was a play when he actually was in there where he kind of fed Daniels into uh, into Vern. Vern kind of took an angle which wasn't great. And I will also add, I forgot to mention, Vern needs to do a much better job boxing out. I mean, Funderburk, uh, there was too much of his offensive rebounds came with Vern not boxing out. That's got to change. And yeah, Vern, he's got to be held accountable for that because he's too big to just kind of not be putting a body on someone. So uh, yeah. All right. But Cassius Stanley, I mean, you can just look when he comes back in like that dude, his movement and his effort and his willingness to fight through every type of screen Again, I'm not saying it would have been perfect. I'm not saying Daniels wouldn't have been able to get some shots. He did score, I think, like four points on Cassius Stanley. But bottom line, from from what I've seen this season, Cassius Stanley is Duke's best on-ball defender, and it's not close. I love Trey, and I'm sure many consider it blasphemous for me to say that Trey isn't the best, even though Markel Johnson beat him even a couple times off the dribble without any sort of screen help, and the fact that Trey... He has been mostly fantastic, especially considering the offensive load that's on his shoulders. But Cassius Stanley has been Duke's most consistent best on-ball defender this season, and I don't think it's even a question. So when you have a, when you have a dude that is Cassius Stanley, that's who he's going to be guarding anyway. Why is Cassius Stanley not in the game? Wow, this guy just absolutely destroys you. And by you, I mean I'm talking like if I'm if I'm talking to Coach K, which of course I mean I'm sure we would have heart to hearts together. He would love me. Why is this occurring? Like I'm trying to figure out the the reasoning behind it, and I can't. I I just can't. There's absolutely no way. Cash is because you look at the second half, and obviously there's context involved, and who knows? I mean, once the score gets kind of crazy, then natural human elements can take involved. But at the same time, what did Devin Daniels do in the second half? Pretty much nothing. He had a couple plays in garbage time, and I'm saying, like, eliminate the garbage time. Once it gets past 5.16, under 5.16... All that stuff, I'm not concerned about it. Game was over, in all in all in all sense to me. But before that, I think he he was like one of two, total. He had like two points. Maybe I think he might have made like two free throws. But at the same time, he wasn't involved. And maybe it wasn't all Cassius. But guess who was in the game in the second half? Once, once that, uh, once he su- we were subbed in, 
guess what happened? Devin Daniels stopped being a guy who was all of a sudden taking over the game like he was in the first half. I mean, with people acting like he was unstoppable, all of a sudden he became stoppable. What was the only difference? Cash is Stanley in the game. So I don't get it. I, I, I don't get it. And when you consider the offense with Duke's offensive struggles, wouldn't it be good to have a guy that can, can uh, really hunt his own shot and be able to take the defender off the dribble? I mean, he's not the best playmaker for others. But at the same time, Duke, they stunk. I mean, in half-court offense, and they couldn't score. So how is having him in? How is that a negative? I'm just kind of talking out loud. I mean, this was obviously much better when me and Andrew were having this conversation and when we're kind of talking it out because uh, that was actually a good conversation. I was just trying to see, am I crazy? And I think that's when I actually am going to use something which I really, I can't remember ever using as specifically as I'm about to because there's a reason for that. All right, so when you use on-offs, on-off stats, that's a that's not the smartest thing to do in college basketball. And when you think about all the elements involved for with their small sample size, there's a lot good there's context, a lot going on. Who is this person playing with? Um time of the game, everything. There's so much going on and just the teams they're playing against, the opponents. That differs as well. And the fact that like some some of these guys, they're I mean, they like there's so much going on. It's just very the sample size makes for everything makes it very risky. And I think it's very easy to frame a narrative however you want. You want you want an example? Alright. So Duke, their games and their games against UNC and Florida State. Those back to back games. Wanna hear something crazy? All right, so uh, Duke's off the, the with Trey Jones his on off. Duke had a better offensive efficiency with him off. Duke had a better defensive efficiency with him off. Duke, uh, their their uh, score. I mean, their plus minus was better with him off in terms of scoring. So, so does that mean Duke should bench Trey? Probably not. Like, you got to understand what's going on involved and why, when he was off, things happened. How, how long was he off? <laughs> I mean, not much this time. So, like, you got you to gotta keep that in mind. So, it's like, like if someone asked me, like, this pl- uh, player, player uh, fill in the blank, how's Duke's uh, defense when they're in the game compared to when they're not? I don't know, I always hesitate to give that because it makes it really easy just to kind of use those stats to uh, kind of make your own narrative almost. It's very easy to do that if you're not being careful. So while I do use on-off stats, I most of the time just kind of keep it in the back of my head and keep it in mind for lineups. And also, it's not like you got to use more than just one person on-off most of the time. You got to see like how they work within lineups and you got to also see more than just scoring. It's more than just points. Like how 
how what else is going on like when this person's in maybe on defense the other team gets a bunch of offensive rebounds maybe that's why i always try to figure out why things are happening it's not just a stat is happening and that's it bottom line i want to figure out why and then there's games and situations where it's just so overwhelming that it's almost like the context doesn't even matter <laughs> and this is one of those times because as I was watching uh, Duke NC State and, and just yelling at the TV and thinking, like, what is Cassius doing on the bench? Like, it doesn't make sense. And just seeing uh, Daniels go crazy and knowing how Cassius, the, the kind of impact he can make. I mean, I didn't even mention transition. I mean, he could have helped there too, you think? So, I don't know. I mean, sometimes you see things. And you're in the moment, and then maybe you watch it again, or you, and it doesn't quite match up the same way you initially remembered. Or maybe you, you see it one way, then you see the stats, and the stats kind of tell total the total opposite. So you think to yourself, oh, maybe I should take another look. And you look, and all of a sudden, yeah, you see it in the way it actually was. Maybe there is some inherent bias. There's always the potential for that. But uh, after watching Cassius, after <laughs> knowing how my reaction was and knowing how confidently I was pissed off, to be perfectly honest. All right, so I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna use the on-offs. And again, if like this, you gotta be careful about how you use this. Again, one game sample. I mean, these minutes that come at random times. You never know. But the the Cassius thing, especially considering everything involved I mean this is just straightforward this is not like some sort of uh, Okafor theory if anyone remembers that because that, that pissed me off more than anything this is one time where I just feel like this game is so blatant it is so blatant that I think it is it's safe for me to use this and it's yeah it's kind of bold to say safe but yeah I, I, th I think it's at least worth it th this time just to show how crazy it is. All right. So, Cassius Stanley. And uh, also when I do this, I always eliminate garbage time, filter out garbage time. And uh, garbage time in this game was kind of exactly what I thought it was at first. The math, it works out the same way. It was basically five minutes, the last five minutes. It was all worthless. Um, so, Cassius Stanley, on for Duke. 18.59 minutes. When he was on, Duke outscored NC State 36-35. Cassius Stanley off. 16.15 minutes. NC State outscored Duke 38-18. Hmm. And then you think about it. Cassius Stanley, he was on for those first... Uh, couple brutal minutes, and I, I mean, NC State got off to a very quick start up to 10-1. Cassius Stanley left after six, after when Duke was down 6-1. to one. So you consider the time he was in after that. So after those initial, I mean, it's even for like two full minutes. Um, yeah, it was, it was like just over two minutes. So I subtracted that. So then you got Cassius Stanley after the initial start on for Duke. Duke outscored uh, 
Duke outscored State 35 to 29, and and the same thing remains. When he was off, State outscored Duke 38 to 18. So how exactly is this occurring? Well, uh, I mean the offensive efficiency it was it wasn't good. Uh, no matter what, whether he was on or off or whatever. Uh, I mean, he was a little bit better with him on. Uh, so, I mean, I would say uh, a respectable offensive efficiency, like 100 is respectable, not good. You want it higher than that. But bottom line, I mean, when he was okay. So when he was on, Duke was 93.506. Not great, but you know what? Better than when he was off. Because when he was off, 59.016. They basically couldn't score at all with him off. At all. Again, 93.506 compared to 59.016. Yikes. Then, okay, so here's the uh, defensive rating. Cassius Stanley on 90.909. That, that's pretty good. It's, it's not otherworldly, but it's pretty good. But when you compare it to Cassius Stanley off Duke's defensive rating, and, and also another thing, this is not his defensive rating. This is the team's. Don't ever use an individual defensive rating. That is garbage. Anyone who ever uses an individual defensive rating should not be allowed to look at, like, basketball stats. Um, so, bottom line, but anyway, uh, his defensive rating, or I'm sorry, Duke's defensive rating, 90.909, but with, that's with him on, with him off, Duke's defensive rating, 124.59. I mean, that's absurd. That is absolutely absurd. I mean, with me, I know he would have impacted the offense a lot, but my my thing is defense. With the way the game was going, defense is, I think, uh, the most important thing. Because, I mean, even the defense, it can affect the offense. It can, can kind of invigorate the, the offense with more energy. And so let, let's look at uh, Stanley's on-off in terms of how it affected the, uh, let's see, the true shooting percentage. When he was on, and true shooting percentage, if you don't know, that it adjusts for all the shots. Because I think I mentioned effective field goal percentage uh, last episode. Effective, it adjusts for uh, three-pointers as well. So uh, either bottom line, true shooting percentage, it does the same thing with free throws. So it includes and adjusts for all the shots, whether it be field goals, uh, two-point field goals, three-point field goals, Free throws, and uh, yeah, everything. So uh, yeah, the true shooting percentage, forty two point eight with him on. With him off, the true shooting percentage for state was sixty one point six eight. You think that makes just a bit of a difference? I would think so. I would definitely think so. I mean, I'm just looking through the turnover rate. So much higher with him off. I mean, okay, even even Duke's turnover rate. Duke's turnover rate was uh, 7.6 with him on, on offense. It means how much they're actually turning it over. With him off, 
was 26.6. So they're turning it over more. I mean, this is a guy, he affects everything going on. And it forces the defense to adjust to him. He does the same thing on defense. Forces the offense to adjust to him. He affects everything. He's that type of guy that's like... When I mention how I feel about Joey Baker, I mean, Joey Baker, even if he's not making shots, the defense has to adjust for him. They have to, like, he affects how things are. Cash Stanley does exactly the same thing. When we when we think about the uh, NC State offensive rebounds, Cash Stanley can help with that. He's a bull. He'll get in there and fight for it. I mean... Thunderbird got a bunch himself in the second half, and I think a lot of that had to do with Vern not boxing out as well as he could. But you didn't see too many other guys get offensive rebounds, and Cassius has a lot to do with that. So, yeah, I mean, I don't really... I mean, there's only so much you can say. I mean, I'll give just a couple other... Like, I'll say... Here we go. I mean, like, when when you compare the uh, three-man on-offs with Cassius, Jordan Goldwire, and Wendell Moore... I mean, you have uh, Cassius on, Wendell on, Goldwire off. Duke outscored State 13-5. You have Cassius on, Goldwire on, Wendell Moore on. Duke outscored State 10-5. Cassius on, Goldwire on, Moore off. Duke got outscored 17-11. And Cassius off. Goldwire on, Wendell Moore on. 36-18 NC State. There's ways, I mean, this is like, Wendell Moore is so vital. And him playing with Cassius, it makes sense. So I'm not quite sure why they're not used more consistently. Because the lineups, when, when you look at the lineups that were used the most, it, it doesn't make sense. I mean, a lot of them have Matthew Hurt in it, and Duke got outscored in all of them, <laughs> like all of them. Like when it when it when it finally gets down to the lineups that played the most that outscore state, like it, they they involve gashes, and it's not a surprise. So I don't know. I mean, there's really only so much I can say, and that except for you know what, you you deserve to at least know. The stats, but please be careful in how you relay them and how you and how you use them. I'm not saying it's like national security or anything. I mean, these are not like it's not like the CIA. I I just think it's it's only a situation like this where it's so blatant that I think it's just worth making it very clear that Cassius Stanley. I don't know. Maybe Duke. I'm not saying Duke would have won. But you know what? I think they would have had a much better chance. And the why it worries me is, or not worries me, but it's just something to keep in mind is, I was I was 100% on board with Kay's decision to uh, play Goldwire the last 10 minutes of Boston College um, instead of uh, Stanley at that point. And, you know, it, just, it was working, so just keep rolling with it. But when you combine that with... Uh, an, with Cassius sitting for two-thirds of the first 25 minutes against State, while K's team gets the crap kicked out of him, and while Stanley, the guy he would be guarding, is going nuts, and while the offense, which Stanley could help, is doing nothing, 
and Kay chooses to keep him on the bench. I just hope he's not in case. I don't know what goes on behind the scenes. And there was a couple years ago, I knew too much about what happened behind the scenes, and I didn't want that anymore, so now I'm perfectly comfortable <laughs> knowing nothing. Yeah, I mean, kind of seeing how the sausage is made on a consistent basis, not, not quite all it's cracked up to be. For those who think it's cracked up to be a lot, I never did, but man, there were some interesting things. But bottom line, I just hope that everything everything is cool because there's, I don't know, bat, in terms of basketball-wise, I don't know why Cash just wasn't in the game. So unless there's something else going on, I think it's pretty cut and dry. I think it's absolutely pretty cut and dry, especially once he, st- I mean, when he played the rest of the game, the eye issue kind of went out the window. I mean, because I was always keeping the back of my head, you know what, let's qualify it. Maybe he just, something's up with that eye. But I don't think so. I mean, when he played the last 15 minutes of the game. And, uh, yeah, when he, when he was in there, I mean, the, the wild thing is the last thing I'll say about, about that. And then I'll close it out. When you look at, uh, the runs in the game, when you look at exactly when teams went on runs, uh, all right. So the second half, uh, the runs started, here we go. Yeah. Second half, 57-34 with 15-48 left to 61-50 with 11-18 left. 16-4 Duke run. Started exactly when Cassius came in. That is not just a coincidence, at least for what I believe. So, uh, yeah, I mean, that's all, that's all I got. I just think there were certain aspects, whether it be the way NC State was... Uh, was defending Duke using a bunch of stunts, whether it be the way that Duke, uh, whether it be the way they were beating Duke's uh, ice coverage on pick and roll, whether it be the way how NC State, it wasn't, it, it was a lot of ISO. That's why, like, they didn't have many assists. It's because that was the way they were designing it. They wanted to just get the matchup to ISO and work from there. It wasn't about it wasn't about this assist. I think like three out of ten came in the, in that garbage time period. Duke's lack of assist was because Duke's offense wasn't doing anything. I think uh, Duke's assist mostly came in uh, transition of the few assists they got besides Javin to O'Connell. Yeah, I, I think the, those things were worth considering. I think the bench and the way it disappears for entire halves. I think it's absolutely worth keeping in mind because it has become a trend. I think the way Duke has stopped turning teams over in the in uh, in in that sort of trend, I think it's worth uh, considering. I mean, there's aspects from NC State. Some of them more specific than others. Some of them are kind of overall trends. Some of them are what specifically happened versus NC State and why. That it's not just like a Boston College. You say, eh, you know what? Let's just let's just move on. I think there's a lot to take from NC State, especially when you consider. I mean, the the what ifs are kind of worthless. They're just like in many aspects of life. But I would I would have been very interested to see Cassius playing, playing more. Because again, there's no there's no reason why he shouldn't have been, in my opinion. All right, last thing, like for uh, leading up to the tournament, I'll start giving some teams that maybe. 
I, I, I would like Duke to play, or probably more, more like I, I don't want Duke to play. Because I think there's like, I mean, just saying I'd like, I would like him to play. It's like kind of disrespectful. Because I, I mean, any team that's in the NCAA tournament, you never know. Um, and I haven't gotten a ton of time to watch many other teams, so that's why now I'm kind of discovering certain teams much later than most. But uh, yeah, as I discover them. I, w- I will uh, kind of give my opinion real quick. This won't be any in-depth thing. Just maybe like a team every podcast, which I uh, I either believe in just as its own entity or that I just don't want Duke anywhere near. So we'll start out with uh, the team I don't want Duke anywhere near, and that is West Virginia. I want Duke as far away from West Virginia as possible. West Virginia's offense is mostly a train wreck. Like, I think they have one guy who shoots, like, over 30% from deep. But bottom line, like, they are absolutely the sum of the parts. And, I mean, the bench, it's like the deepest bench in the country or, like, very close to it, The one of the deepest bench. They are so physical. They are not afraid to grind. I mean, they – it would be – I mean, the whole, the, whole, the whole kind of cliche thing of a rock fight – that would be what Duke and West Virginia would be. And I am not sure. Duke would come out on top there. It would be hugely physical. And I would just rather not have it. And and I'm not saying that to say Duke would lose. But you know what? I am going through uh, West Virginia and just trying to figure out if Duke's like, if Duke ends up like a one seed, I just want West Virginia, don't be a four or five. If Duke's a two seed... Don't be a three. I just don't want West Virginia anywhere near. And hey, there is a history uh, of uh, NCAA tournament matchups. Uh, it was somewhat recent with 2008 second round loss, and then and then 2010 with the uh, they uh, they beat West Virginia pretty handily in the final four. So they have played uh, semi recently, two out of three years there in the tournament. And Bob Huggins, tons of respect for him. But that, that's a team that I don't know if I'm even high on because of their lack of offense, but their defense is just nuts. Their defense is nuts, and they go so deep. And who knows, maybe you you, well, you want a team that you want certain players that can just get their shots whenever. I mean, that's generally how things are done rather than have a bunch of guys, but you don't quite know who's who, who it's going to. I mean, sometimes that can work. Sometimes it doesn't. Florida State... Uh, they are a bit of the same way as West Virginia, but I don't know. The physicality with West Virginia is beyond impressive to watch. I will say that. And their defense, I mean, they do the same thing Duke does and just kind of takes away the three. Really, really impressive. All right, so that's all I got uh, for now. I'm hopefully going to uh, be recording again after Duke plays uh, Virginia Tech. Virginia Tech not quite the same team in terms of what how I felt. They, they were confident uh, with Duke coming to their place uh, earlier this season. But they still pose an interesting matchup. So we'll see. I mean, will, uh, will, Vern, will Vern play more minutes? Because that was the game where uh, early on in the second half, Kay subbed all, out all the bigs, played small. So Hurt didn't play the second half. Vern didn't play the second half. Or after the first couple seconds of the second half or first couple minutes. And yeah, that was the first time 
after I started bitching and, and, and whining about how I wanted Wendell at the four after he played like three seconds at the four against Georgetown in the 2K Classic. So Virginia Tech was the first time he actually played there. But that was like a specific type of matchup where I was like, I don't know if this really proves that K is willing. At this point in the season, yeah. When Wendell, Wendell uh, Moore, he can absolutely handle his own at the four, even with regular types of, of uh, matchups against opponents. So, But I think he, we might absolutely see him a lot against uh, Virginia Tech. Virginia Tech's had some... Uh, They've they've had some rough times since December, but I do think it should uh, pose an interesting game. Hopefully, Duke can uh, get back on track. And again, with NC State, I just think watch out for those lazy, stupid narratives uh, with the group think, especially on social media, about how Duke doesn't have heart, plays for the uh, back of the jersey, not the front. All all the all that nonsense. I mean, the, these dudes are given everything they have. And yeah, I mean, there, there, there's basketball things that happen in basketball games, and while well, human element is always involved and is worth recognizing, I think that uh, yeah, going over the actual basketball things can help to give uh, somewhat of a better understanding. So it's not just ripping kids, which is the most awful thing. So yeah, let's try not to do that. All right, please rate and review. What you have heard today, much of it is not being reported, covered, written about by anyone. People who, this is their career. I'm trying to make it mine and I I make nothing from this. And yet, it's better. I put more time into it, more effort. Because what what, what I give, the information I give, it's basketball related. It's not, it's not somebody writing about how, you know what, NC State just came in and they gave it everything and Duke couldn't handle it. I mean, that's not, that's, that's stupid. I don't know any other way to put it. You can make the language and the writing as flowery as you want or, or the words you use. But it's still a basketball game and it's really just kind of a, a big giveaway that you'd rather be lazy than try to actually figure out what's happening in basketball. I'm not talking about anyone specific. I I use generalizations when there's enough people using them to be able for for me to be able to do it that way. I if there's like two people doing it, I wouldn't ever generalize. But when there's pretty when there's a ton, yeah. I can I can say that and it makes sense cuz I don't ever want to call out anyone specific. I try to avoid that. The only time I think I've ever done that is when, like, last year, I think I did it, uh, when incorrect, there was, like, an incorrect injury reports. Like, two publications reported two different things about, like, Jack White going into one game. I think it was in the tournament. And I'm just like, this stuff is just completely fake. And it doesn't make sense why they're doing it. And, uh, yeah, so, like, last uh, last episode with the reporting on Cassius and the way that ESPN reported that he got injured earlier in the week. I mean, that was just stupid. And the way that many wrote about how Zion, like he was the story of the game, that was stupid and unfair to the other Duke players. Yeah, I'm going to comment on that. And and bottom line, who cares who's writing it? I mean, the people writing it, I mean, it is, uh, it's, their, it's their decision. 
and whatever whatever works for them. But I'll, all I do is try to uh, present what I do as realistically and as logically, as rationally and as ethically as possible. And quality, I've always felt will be rewarded eventually, even if not immediately. I've been doing this for a while. And uh, the work I put in, going above and beyond, hopefully it is it is recognized. And if it is, support it. Support quality of any type of work in, uh, in, the, in this world. When, especially indie creators. There might be some. There might be the needle in the haystacks. But most of the time, the people who have made it, they will not support the indie. Or at least that's the feeling I've gotten. So I need help. I need help. I give you the best coverage possible. I ask for nothing. I'm not asking for money. I'm just saying, take it to take uh, 30 seconds. Tell tell somebody. Tell everyone. Tell everyone who's a Duke fan that you know this is the only place, or the at least the best place, to get the best Duke coverage. There is on any platform, any type, and give a rating, give a review if you enjoy. Won't take long. I appreciate it. So I will be back, and I will be uh, giving everything I have to present the best coverage possible to you. So again, I apologize to Andrew Clark, and it, it, if anyone thinks that like, like next episode I might there's a chance I'm not quite sure yet I might be doing a uh, a test run with somebody with uh, a, a a new co-host. It's not because like. I take full responsibility for Andrew Clark. He, we did record, and it was a great episode. So uh, I, I feel really bad. And if it's somebody else, it's not because like Andrew hates me or anything. But it is my responsibility anyway. If he did, I wouldn't blame him. So, but I will. I'll be back with somebody very soon. And uh, yeah, it's crunch time now. This is this is this is a fun time of the year. Lots to talk about. Again. For Adam Comer, this is the Duke Basketball Corner Podcast. I'll be talking to you soon.